Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can subscribe at iTunes for free. And you can also catch my live radio broadcast weekdays, 9 to 10 a.m. at 6.70 a.m. KMZQ in Las Vegas. Today we're going to talk a little bit about corruption in Afghanistan. As you can imagine, Afghanistan, as you know, is a very corrupt country. There's a lot of craziness that goes on there. A lot of poppy fields, Taliban, criminals, all kinds of crazy stuff. But that happens everywhere. But then you have the United States who is picking and choosing who to get upset about when it comes to corruption. I have a former DEA agent joining me today. He's got a brand new book out. It's all about Afghanistan and the corruption over there. His name is John Seaman. Welcome, John Seaman, to the Heidi Hare Show podcast. Thank you, Heidi, and uh, thank you for having me on your show this morning. Now, you were a DEA agent for how long? I was a DEA agent for a little over 21 years, and I, I served in law enforcement a little over 25. Let's talk a little bit about how you wound up in Afghanistan, how you wound up seeing firsthand what was going on with the corruption with Hamid Karzai and all the craziness over there. Well, I ended up going to Afghanistan in uh, January 2012. There was a contract, and so I, I went ahead and submitted my name to it. I got picked up because I had prior experience in internal affairs, and they were looking for somebody to work the uh, anti-corruption aspect of uh, corruption over there in helping the uh, DOJ with the Afghan government on their corruption problems. So that's how I got hired on by as a contractor on behalf of DOJ. Were you surprised when you got over there at the level of corruption? No, not at all. This, If you look at all the failed states or if you look across the board in Mexico and all the uh, uh, governments going down south. Uh, this is standard operating procedure. This is nothing new. Uh, corruption is one of the main issues that you face today besides terrorism. It's kind of, They kind of go hand, hand in hand with each other, and you have to work them both at the same time. If you just work one and forget the other, your whatever strategy you have will fail. It's interesting how you, when you talk about corruption, you're certainly talking about corruption at the level of the various nations and, you know, the, ma the amount of money that they make from drugs and the public officials they bribe and all that kind of thing. But when you've got American officials who look the other way when things are going on, that's the same kind of corruption, basically. That, that's correct. It's called, in, in the, in the uh, corruption world, it's called governmental corruption. And it's kind of like a, an, uh, 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 a hidden thing that everybody's aware of. And, and again, it's due to, you hit it, nailed the uh, uh, nail on the head, it's due for political expedience on whatever going on to, so they can get their accolades, whatever their political uh, endgame is. Let's talk about Operation Reciprocity, what it was and how it could have made a difference. Well, no, let me, it was an operation, a, a friend of mine was over there. He was the director of DEA at the time for the Southwest uh, Asian region for DEA. So he ran, he was in charge of Pakistan, Afghanistan, and that whole Southwest, uh, Uzbekistan, and a few other countries there for uh, the drug uh, situation. And he worked out of the U.S. Embassy and reported directly to the uh, U.S. Ambassador. So he was at a high level and basically the guy in charge of all DEA efforts in Afghanistan for counter-narcotics. Uh, so he when I got over there in January 2012, he told me, he said he started looking at, uh, DA had been in Afghanistan since 2003, after the invasion, up uh, until current date. And they had done a lot of investigations. In fact, four major 
uh, narco traffickers were arrested and taken out between, I believe, the years uh, 2006 through 2008. And those four narco, major narco traffickers were prosecuted in U.S. federal court. And so his theory is all the cases, all the operations they did over there, what they saw was that the Taliban was protecting the drug traffickers and the drug traffickers were assisting the Taliban. And so what happened was the Taliban basically morphed in to, uh, and, and to uh, work with the drug traffickers because a lot of their funding was coming from uh, illegal drugs. And that's how they were uh, growing and how they were funding their insurgency over there. Yeah, that sounds pretty obvious. It's, it's almost like one of those situations where you've got uh, some mafioso in New York City and the whole neighborhood protects him because he's promising them protection themselves. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's the same parallel. And what's great about uh, this situation, it parallels the same situation that the United States faced in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000 period with the FARC, which is the uh, Colombian uh, revolutionary group. Uh, what the FARC did was they were a, a uh, narco-terrorist group, I mean a terrorist group, who morphed into a narco-group. So they basically started getting involved with the major traffickers, protecting uh, their lanes, protecting their areas, and then actually got into the business of actually distributing and everything else. And so the, the FARC set the example, and that was under the Planned Columbia strategy they had in the 1990, or the 2000 period. They ended up indicting the FARC leadership in 2006 on a major indictment of, of uh, the majority of the leadership. What that did, Heidi, by that indictment is it allowed the U.S. government, okay, to, to put pressure on the Colombian government to assist them because we had an extradition treaty to get the Colombian or the FARC uh, leadership out of Colombia into U.S. court. Well, the FARC was scared to death of that. That kind of did was it put pressure on the FARC to negotiate with the Colombian government. And I would say they just did a peace agreement, I think, in 2016, where the FARC is now uh, relinquishes anything to do with narcotics and, and trafficking, and it's become a political group in Colombia. And I believe by them doing what they did by indicting in the U.S. and putting pressure on the FARC, that that's what the, the end result was. So when you were over there in Afghanistan, you would have assumed, based on what happened with the FARC indictments, that similar things could have happened and been successful with Afghanistan. That's correct. It's the same model, same strategy, using the legal theory of using the rule of law, using U.S. law to indict uh, the narco-trafficking groups and, their, and everybody involved with them in one conspiracy and bringing them to the U.S. and facing justice. Now, one thing I do want to say about the FARC, I, I, I believe this is accurate. When the FARC signed a peace agreement with the Colombian government, they feared extradition. And I believe one of the uh, things they put in there is that any of the FARC leadership that was indicted under that 2006 indictment would not be extradited to the U.S. to face trial. And I believe that was part of the accords that signed in 2016. Interesting. Now, was that because they knew they'd get off scot-free in Colombia? I mean, I'd rather be in an American prison than a Colombian prison myself, but I guess they weren't going to no, be prosecuted in Colombia, right? No, it was more of a political solution to bring them to the peace table. The same thing that the U.S. government is trying to do today to get the Taliban to, uh, to negotiate with the Afghan government. The difference between what happened in Colombia and what happened in Afghanistan was in Colombia, the Colombian government at the time were the ones doing the negotiation with the FARC. The U.S. was behind the scenes. They want to lead, whereas under Obama's government, 
basically was negotiating directly with the town where the Karzai government was kind of out of the picture show. So what were they trying to do? What was the Obama administration trying to get Karzai to do? Because you know he's taking the money. He's taking advantage of all of this. So what did they want him to do, and what did Obama not do as a result? Well, it, it, it's, it goes down to the policy. Uh, you have to look at what uh, when Obama took over in 2008, they came up. Their strategy in Afghanistan, counter-narcotics and counter-corruption, was a thing called surge, transition, withdrawal. Okay, under surge, okay, they did. They surged 100,000 troops in 2010. Okay, they went into places where all the opium fields were in margin, whatever, and U.S. troops went down there, and there were battles, and, and people lost their lives. So they basically kicked the, the Taliban out of those opium-growing areas. Then in 2011, he changed a, they went into the transition mode where the focus now is going to be on the training of the Afghan armed forces, the training of their law enforcement. So by the time... 2014 comes on that the U.S. government will withdraw from Afghanistan. And that was the whole plan of, of doing this thing, was to get out of Afghanistan by 2014. Unfortunately, in hindsight, the Afghans, uh, just like in Iraq, they weren't prepared to be able to handle uh, their part of the job as far as handling counter-narcotics, the military, and all the other uh, issues that uh, remained. Well, because they didn't have a decent society. That's the problem. It's not like we could just pull out of there and they'd be okay because they can't. Well, yeah. Well, you get, it comes back down to the rule of law. Unless you establish government and have a solvent government and you address the corruption issue, uh, by not addressing the corruption issue, the, the counter-narcotic or the, or the, uh, the corruption and the, and the narcotics go hand-to-hand because the funding from the narcotics fund the corruption in the government. I mean, people are getting paid off to look the other way, police officers, politicians. So it's just a, uh, it's the same thing you have in Mexico going on today with the drug cartel. Well, what's such a shame? In Mexico. Yeah, what's such a shame is that there were people who were killed. There was a helicopter accident involving DEA agents. Talk a little bit about that. That's terrible. Yeah, this is really terrible, and that was one of the reasons why uh, myself and uh, my counterpart, Mike Marsak, we this, uh, we wrote the book. It's basically dedicated to the three, in the memories of the three DEA agents, uh, Forrest Lemon, Chad Michael, and Michael Weston, and the seven U.S. Uh, service members who lost their lives on October 26, 2009, when a helicopter uh, crashed in western Afghanistan after completion of a narco uh, uh terrorism mission. You know what's so sad about this? By the way, I do want to mention the book. It's called Ideology and Political Correctness, Trump Reality, The Compelling Story of Narco-Terrorism and Corruption in Afghanistan by John Seaman. Uh, where can people get this book? Uh, this book can be purchased on Amazon, okay. and it's in softcover, and it's also in the ebook site. Okay, fantastic. Uh, the sad thing is that there are always people who are killed when there's any kind of war. We get that. But it makes you crazy when people are dying, and yet politicians are just ignoring all of the research you're doing, all of the facts you're finding out, all of the fingers you're pointing at the correct people. The government saw all this with Operation Reciprocity, and they didn't want to move forward. Let's talk about that. Well, it, it's basically you know, political decisions were made. You, got, you had an administration that was tied into their political ideology, and they just ignored the threat of the Taliban. That's really what it comes down to. I mean, there's no explanation to this. On that, on when you look at what their policy was, what, they, what their strategy was. And I'll give you a great example. In 2000, their plan was to get everybody out by 2014. 
However, in 2016, before Obama left office, I believe in April of, uh, of that year, uh, Obama administration uh, told the Congressional Research Service, which is the reporting service uh, to the U.S. Congress on things going on in policy, their administrative officials basically said that their, their plan of surge transition withdrawal uh, uh, was working. However, the Taliban does not pose a threat to the security of Afghanistan. Now think about those words. The Taliban does not pose a threat to the security of Afghanistan. In reality, the Taliban had grown stronger, had retaken over the, the territory that those uh, U.S. Marines lost their life in in Kandahar and those Marja areas on the deal. They had solidified uh, taking over the drug trade as far as actually becoming, running the drug operations. And so they had solidified the whole uh, counter uh, 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 thing as a terrorist group of how a terrorist group can become a narco-terrorist group and then pose a problem to the rest of the world. And that's basically uh, uh, what went on there. You know, the big problem I have for speaking with John Seaman, a former DEA agent, about corruption in Afghanistan amid the, with the Taliban and the drug traffickers. You know what always frustrated me the most about President Obama? And that, listen, there are a lot of presidents who made mistakes. There are a lot of presidents who didn't want to deal with reality or did things for political expedience. We understand that. But President Obama, to me, always seemed like a guy who just absolutely refused to see the world as it actually was. In other words, when somebody would tell him about something terrible that was going on in the world, he would literally, you could see him, putting his hands over his ears and going, la, 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 I'm not listening. I have a view of the world. That's the way it is. Do you see it the same way? Oh, yeah. Well, that's the purpose. That's what I, why I wrote the book. I explain the failure, and I, and I basically take it through two DEA uh, closed cases, one on the corruption side, and one on the uh, narco-terrorism side. So I'm walking the, uh, the uh, reader through uh, actual uh, potential or what the evidence showed, so the reader then can get an idea, okay, uh, what did law enforcement, what did DEA do over there, what were their efforts, what was the end result, and why didn't this work? And that's basically to highlight where the, where the problems were. And the problems were in Obama's own policies. Uh, another example, counter-corruption. When they came over there, the emphasis uh, in the late 2000 period was on the emphasis of working high-level Afghan uh, government officials for corruption. That's what the U.S. military was working. That's what U.S. law enforcement was working. When the Obama administration came in in 2011, they changed the policy from going from high-level Afghan government officials to low levels. And why did they do that? It's because of the Kabul bank case. The Kabul bank case was the largest bank fraud in the world at the time, and a lot of uh, uh, bribes were paid to uh, Afghan government officials, and some of the people that were involved in that were relatives of the current government. So in order to cover that up, they basically uh, went after the regulators and charged all the regulators with crimes, and they're the ones that had nothing to do with the bank fraud. From my perspective, we should be able to, to walk and chew gum at the same time. Makes sense to me. John Seaman, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. I hope everybody picks up the book. Once again, the book's called Ideology and Political Correctness, Trump Reality. If you forget everything I just said, look up the book by John Seaman on Amazon about Afghanistan. Thank you, John. I appreciate what you did. I appreciate you trying to make a difference. And thanks for being here today. Hey, thank you very much, Heidi. I appreciate it. Now, here's a quick word from our sponsor. 
The Heidi Harris Podcast is heard by tens of thousands of listeners because she's sassy, funny, and lovable. If you'd like to place your message on the podcast, I'll help you get started. I'm Donna Francavilla, owner of Frankly Speaking Communications. I'll voice your message for you for just $100, recorded, edited, and submitted as a special offering. Let me help you tell your story. Write to me at DonnasNiceVoice.com. That's DonnasNiceVoice.com. And Donna also does voiceovers for various other commercials, so if you're interested in talking to her about that, even if it's not related to my podcast, hit her up at DonnasNiceVoice.com. I'm Heidi Harris. Don't forget you can catch my live broadcast weekdays 9 to 10 a.m. at 6.70 a.m. KMZQ in Las Vegas. That's five days a week, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 10 a.m., 6.70 a.m. KMZQ in Las Vegas. And, of course, you can catch this podcast three times a week for free at iTunes. You can also follow me at Heidi Harris Show on my uh, Facebook page, Heidi Harris Show on Twitter, and HeidiHarris.com is my website. Until we meet again, remember, you were created for a purpose. Here's Tony Scottwell. (laughs) 